Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Okay. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. And um, for today's interview, uh, it's my pleasure to say that we've got Dr. Alan Francis here. Um, Alan Francis, he was the chairman uh, of uh, Duke Psychiatry, and he also led the team that wrote the DSM-4. Um, I would say it's fair to say that uh, Dr. Francis has been at the center of establishment psychiatry, and he's also a respected leader kind of, you know, within that field. About 10 years ago, he started to very publicly raise attention about some of the limitations of our current mental health system, uh, first by talking about the DSM and the way it's misused, but also generally about the different kind of in incentives that have led to, uh, you know, suboptimal mental health care in the U.S. So, um we're going to have a discussion about uh, specifically about benzodiazepines and antidepressants. And um, on that note, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to, to Dr. Francis, who's going to tell us a little bit about um, the history of these medications and how they, they came to be used. So thanks for being here. Uh, I was uh, part of the new wave of psychiatrists in the 70s that were thrilled when the benzodiazepines came on the market because they seemed to be um, so all-purpose helpful, uh, wonderful for detox. The hope was that they could be a replacement for alcoholism with many fewer side effects. And then I came to realize very quickly when I ran a drug and alcohol program that the patients who you switched to uh, benzodiazepines wound up taking more alcohol and more benzodiazepines together and got into lots of trouble. And I realized in the early 70s that this was a very dangerous medication. I think people need to understand why they became so popular. Why are benzodiazepines so popular? So currently in the U.S., 4% of people, 4% of the general population of the U.S. is on a benzodiazepine. 8% of the population of geriatric patients, geriatric, elder seniors, is on a benzodiazepine. And that's particularly striking. Twice the, the general population rate in elderly because it's so dangerous in the elderly with falls, memory impairment, confusion, delirium, all tremendous risk factors in the elderly. Why are these medicines so popular? Well, the first, the first villain in this piece is Arthur Sackler. You know, people are probably familiar with the Sackler family's uh, villainous role in promoting the um, opioid uh, horrible epidemic that's now completely out of hand with the introduction of fentanyl. The Sackler family has been an absolute tragedy in American history, and the opioid epidemic is only the latest uh, example of this. Sackler, during medical school, uh, worked for a, a Madison Avenue advertising company. He bought the company um, early in his career, and he became the advisor to um, Roach, which produced both Librium and Valium in terms of their advertising. And he invented most of the uh, horrible tools of drug company advertising during the uh, 60s and 70s. The idea of having thought leaders, of having advertisements, uh, beautiful detailed people to visit doctors and push the product. And most importantly, the idea that the psychiatric medicines should be used by everyone, not just psychiatric patients. So he developed an advertising campaign for Librium and Valium that emphasized the fact that these were anti-anxiety drugs that helped everyone. You didn't need to have a psychiatric disorder to benefit from them. And they emphasized the relative safety and the enormous efficacy. 
And the drugs quickly became among the best-selling drugs in America, very quickly and very soon after that, best-selling drugs in the world. So the original sin of the benzodiazepines rests with the Sacklers, goes back 50 years now. The, um, the second edition of this was with the introdu introduction of Xanax, and I think it was 86 or 87. And I actually saw some of the early data that was being produced by an international um, collaboration of researchers on Xanax. And it turned out that the, um, the dose that was used for panic disorder, that was effective for panic disorder, was very close to an addicting dose. From the company's perspective, this was shockingly a good thing, not a bad thing, because it meant that the people who used the medication for panic disorder would essentially be hooked on it and they would be lifetime customers. And in, in my view, the, um, the indications for um, the use of benzodiazepine are vanishingly small in psychiatry. The only uses of benzodiazepines that are worth the enormous risks are in catatonia, because it has a dramatic effect in improving catatonic patients, so does ECT. But benzodiazepines are dramatically effective in catatonia, but that's a relatively uh, rare condition. Uh, it, it can be useful and is useful in detox. It's useful in some neurological conditions. It's useful maybe in some emergency situations where there's a need to instantly reduce agitation. Um, it might be useful for the first few weeks in panic disorder until the uh, SSRI or the psychotherapy kicks in. But the risks are so high of patients becoming hooked on it that I would see that as a basically a risk-benefit ratio I'd be very unwilling to take for most people. So by and large, you have a medication that's very popular. Patients love it. It's like being able to get the relaxation uh, from drinking alcohol in a pill form. It's very popular. It works in terms of immediate short-term benefit. But the long-term ridiculously high risks are never considered during the initial uh, period of prescription. And the worst part of the story is that 80% uh, of the benzodiazepines uh, are prescribed, at least 80% of the benzodiazepines are prescribed by primary care doctors, not by psychiatrists. And they're usually prescribed after about a 15 minute visit. Uh, the way, the most important thing for doctors in America these days is getting the patient out of the office quickly. The easiest way to get a patient out of the office quickly is to give them a benzodiazepine because the medicine will make them feel better in the short run. And the long-term considerations, all the risks that, uh, that come with addiction and overdose are ignored by the primary care doctor because he doesn't have time to think about that. He has the um, compelling injunction from his boss to get the patient out of the office very quickly. So patients are never educated about the risks are always um, plugged into the benefits. In the long run, that's led to the, the disastrous situation with uh, millions and millions of people in medicine that they can't stop. It's very hard to stop benzodiazepines. It's a very long, very um, dangerous withdrawal period unless it's done under careful supervision. It has to be done very slowly over months in most cases. And so we have the situation where millions and millions and maybe tens of millions of people or in medication they no longer need, no longer benefit from, that has all of the risks of, of dependency without any of the benefits of efficacy. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you for that overview. Um, I want to pick up on a thread there. You know, you this is something you've spoken about at, at length before, but 
you know, we, it's, it's, it's that thing you said about, you know, the incentive being to get the patient out of the doctor's office uh, kind of a, as quickly as possible. And, you know, certainly that was my experience when I was going through training and it's been something that I've seen recently, you know, whether it's the, the way um, uh, psychiatrists are reimbursed for treatment. I mean, it's, you get more uh, reimbursement if you do four 15 minute visits, as opposed to say doing a 15 minute med check and then combining it with, you know, 40 minutes of psychotherapy or something like that. And so, I mean, that, that is also a factor. Then there's also things like RSUs, which are um, these incentives given to physicians to kind of see patients over their typical quota, and then they get bonuses at the end of the year for that. And, and I mean, I mean, that's something I'd like to get your perspective on, because I feel like when that dove, that kind of incentive model to see people in shorter periods of time is kind of um, led up with things, you know, you know, uh, kind of combined with things like the DSM, you don't really get, um, I guess, physicians who are really getting to know their patients in the context of the stresses in their lives. You know, it becomes almost this searching for, um, you know, what, what symptoms do you have? And okay, you have these symptoms, and now we have a drug that meets that indication. And then, like you said, you know, it's prescribed and they kind of leave. So, yeah, I'd, li I'd like to get your, your, your perspective on, you know, how you think psychiatry is practiced in the U.S. today. And I guess what you think of the, are the key, the, the, the main drivers of, of the way it's practiced. Well, again, psychiatry is only a small part of the problem. At least 80% of the medications are prescribed in primary care. Yes. So even, even if we had perfect psychiatric practice, it, it would not even begin to touch the magnitude of the overprescription and, and careless uh, use of medication, particularly the benzodiazepines, which have so little utility in our field. I think that, um, as, you, as you mentioned, all of the incentives are in the wrong direction. Um, any jerk can write a prescription, and many do. And particularly if you only have 15 minutes with the patient, and you never get to know their problems, the context of their problems. Most of the problems people present with the primary care, and many of the problems that people present to the psychiatrist are more psychosocial than they are biological, that are related to current stress, loss of support, grieving, um, financial distress. Uh, so social and psychological problems are an enormous driver of people to want some sort of pill solution to a problem that often doesn't lend itself to, to, chem to chemical um, agents. And it takes much more time upfront to be able to talk to people, to get to know them. Uh, Hippocrates said it's more important to know the, the patient who has the disease than the disease the patient has, that in order to understand the um, psychological and social context of, of a given symptom, you have to know the person, and that requires time and expertise. In order to write a prescription, you just have to have the um, uh, the MD and, and the ability to um, to say, I'm going to give you this medicine. You don't have to get to know the patient. You don't even have to get, know the medicine very well. And so many prescriptions for psychiatric medications are written by people who are not very well trained in psychiatry. And even if they are, have very little time, certainly not enough time to get to know the person and explain the other options. For most mild to moderate problems, particularly transient ones that patients present with, time, watchful waiting, and um, 
placebo effect um, are much more powerful than any active uh, useful um, efficacy from the medication. So for most mild to moderate problems, talking to people, getting to know their situation, providing advice, support, reducing stress, um, simple psychotherapeutic techniques will be far more useful than medication. In the long run, far less expensive. Once you're on a benzodiazepine, there's a very strong uh, pressure uh, based on tolerance to increase the dose. And as the dose gradually rises, often it'll be very gradually and over many years, the um, ability to get off the medicine becomes less and less. And the uh, symptoms that arise from deprescribing more and more risky. So that people are trapped often into a lifelong dependence on medication for transient stress-related environmental and psychological problems that would have been dealt with much more efficiently with a, um, a good evaluation, psychoeducation, and psychotherapy at the outset. Medication is the easy, cheap thing to do in the short run. It turns out to be very, very difficult and expensive in the long run. And would you extend that same kind of um, uh, train of thought to the use of antidepressants for you know, mild to moderate depression as well? Yeah, I think yeah. that the um, antidepressants became remarkably popular with the advent of, of um, Prozac and again, same time around 1987 with uh, the, the notion that they didn't have the uh, difficult side effects of the older antidepressants, although they have their own package of side effects. And at the beginning, it wasn't really clear that they had withdrawal symptoms. It's become increasingly clear that for many people, it turns out that a very large percentage of people who start an antidepressant stay on it for a long period of time. This despite the fact that most of the people who seem to get a benefit from the antidepressant from mild to moderate problems are probably placebo responders. So if you have a mild to moderate short-term depression, the odds of a placebo response are over 50%. The odds of a drug response are maybe 60 to 70%. There's very little added advantage of the active ingredient in the medication when you're dealing with mild to moderate uh, depressions. Most of the response has to do with the passage of time and the expectation of recovery. But if you start a medicine at the beginning of your, at the end of a visit with your primary care doctor or psychiatrist for a transient depression and you get better in three weeks, you don't know that you got better because of time and placebo effect you think you got better because of the medication. And many people will stay on medication for many, many years, sometimes decades that they may not have needed, but have a great deal of trouble getting off. They have misattributed the response to the medication when it was really just time. But once you're on the medications, particularly if the dose is significant and it's long acting, the um, efforts to, to stop the medication may lead to withdrawal symptoms which are often misunderstood as being part of the original problem, a return of the original depression, not seen as a withdrawal symptom from um, reducing the dose of the medication. So that people get trapped. Medicine that may not have been needed in the first place becomes necessary as time goes on because of its withdrawal effects. And since the uh, art of deprescribing is very rarely taught anywhere in medical school or uh, medical training. Doctors are, are trained to prescribe. 
They're constantly prescribing. The art of sunsetting medications is very rarely taught, very rarely learned. And most um, physicians are not good at sunsetting medication. It requires great skill, it requires almost no skill to prescribe a medication. It requires very great skill to de-prescribe a medication. Has to usually be, be done very slowly under careful supervision, especially the benzodiazepines. There are considerable risks of, of really tragic withdrawal symptoms unless it's done carefully and well and under supervision. And so we have a situation with both the benzodiazepines, the antidepressants, to a lesser degree, but significant degree also with antipsychotics, that medication that may not have been needed at the beginning becomes needed because of its withdrawal symptom effect. And we don't have enough people trained and have the time in order to help people get off medications. It's too easy to get on medications. At this point, there's too little help in getting off them. Yeah, and it can it, it really leads to some terrible places. I mean, we we treat some patients who, you know, just like you said, maybe, you know, 20 years ago or something, they moved, they moved states and they were stressed at the time and they got placed on something and then kind of needlessly the medication, you know, was continued for, you know, like a decade until they eventually reached tachyphylaxis, which is essentially just dependence on the medication. It stops losing any kind of therapeutic effect it was having. And instead of, you know, uh, I guess the prescriber at the time doing a, you know, a history and maybe putting together a plan to withdraw, because that sometimes improves the problem when people find themselves very kind of blunted when the medication has it caused this level of dependence. Instead of doing that, they get they get started on an antipsychotic medication, and then that can really lead lead to a lot of uh, other problems. And that's usually where, I guess, people people tend to find my clinic, and uh, we start untangling things. People are in polypharmacy. That yeah. the tendency is to mm -hmm. whenever there's a new problem, a new symptom, or an insufficient efficacy with the uh, symptoms that were originally the the uh, indication for the first medication. Instead of carefully withdrawing one medicine and beginning another, um, maybe in tandem and gradually, the tendency is just to add the new medicine. Yes. And at this point, it's not uncommon for people to, to present with three, four, five medications. There's absolutely um, no literature on polypharmacy, except for a few conditions like bipolar disorder, where it's important mm -hmm. to have both mood stabilizers and antidepressants. But by and large, uh, most of the polypharmacy that is um, so common in practice today is, is unmoored to any research findings. Um, it's very hard to do, it's hard enough to do studies of one drug versus another drug versus placebo. It's almost impossible, is impossible to do studies that have two drugs versus one drug or three drugs versus two drugs versus one drug. Too many cells, too complex for clinical presentations. So most of what passes now for polypharmacy is really just um, occasionally, occasionally it's careful customization yes. of what the patient needs. So there's some mm -hmm. combinations, cocktails that particularly skillful clinicians and very cooperative patients work out that works when nothing else works. Mm -hmm. there's some, there are some people for whom poly, polypharmacy is helpful, but by and large, most polypharmacy these days is mindless and excessive. And I think that for many people, the, um, reduction in medication done gradually is the key to their getting better. That many people present any new symptom that I see in anyone, the first thought I have is medication side effects. Mm -hmm. the, the, so common, medication side effects are so common uh, because medications are so ubiquitous, combinations of medications, 
given out so carelessly. As people age, they get less good at clearing medications, metabolizing them. So that the whenever you see a symptom in anyone, the first thing you should be thinking about is, is medication side effects. Uh, but that's not the case. And what usually happens is that there's a chasing of each new symptom. And when a person presents with a symptom, let's add a medicine rather than thinking about the fact that maybe that symptom is actually caused as a side effect of the package of medicines the person's already getting. I want to ask you, I guess, a personal question uh, about, about, you know, how you came to start seeing, you know, thinking, you know, could this be a side effect? From my, my experience, I guess, going through training and, and I guess, you know, I still work in emergency room settings and, and hospital settings doing this. And, and, that, and that is definitely not, you know, the, the primary diagnosis that I'm seeing on a lot of notes from clinicians or at least, a uh, you know, a differential, you know, consider this a medication side effect. Where in your career did, did um, when abouts in your career did this um, start to emerge as saying, hang on a second, you know, a lot of these problems are medic medication side effects. Was this early on? Was this mid? Was this late? When, when did you come to that realization? Pretty early on. First off, as I mentioned yeah. before, I became quickly yeah. disillusioned with the benzodiazepines in the early mm -hmm. 70s. And then I was in charge of the um, outpatient department and the emergency room at Payne Whitney Cornell in New York and saw so many of the catastrophes caused by medication in our clinic that actually I wrote a paper in 1982 called No Treatment as the Treatment of Choice. I have because to read that. Yeah. Yeah. For many people, it, yeah. it turned out that the treatment itself was doing more, more yeah. harm than good. So I, I became aware of the problem early from having responsibility mm. for so many patients in clinical practice. And then I was worried about the DSM. I started working on the DSM-3 in 77. I saw it proliferate diagnoses, became very concerned that the pro proliferation of diagnoses was leading to a proliferation of, of over-medication. The drug companies were very active in psychiatry around that time because it was at that point probably the most uh, profitable of all the medications they were producing. So they were advertising like crazy. The DSM was expanding the system. Patients were receiving medications at multiples. The rates of medication use went up three, four, five times during the 80s and 90s. So it, it seems it seems like it was a runaway train. And um, I thought it was my responsibility to do my best to contain it, although it turned out to be an unsuccessful effort. Yeah. I wanted to I want to shift gears now. I mean, you know, in, in your book, Saving Normal, but also in a lot of keynotes, you, you speak and write beautifully about um, cultural influences in uh, in the US that are that I think are unique. I mean, they may also be happening, they, they probably are happening in other parts of the globe. And I guess it's 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 this idea of um, I guess disease mongering is is how it's talked about from from I guess whether it's the medical affairs units of different companies where they put out these campaigns to almost raise awareness about the prevalence of say depression and anxiety and you know how serious it is. And um, I guess the way we see this as boots on the ground psychiatrists, oftentimes as patients coming into our office with the expectation of getting a medication saying, I have a mental illness, you know, I need this treatment, it's serious. And, you know, there's almost this implicit thing there, you know, if, if you were to go against this, oh, you know, you're, you're lacking compassion or you're almost um, stigmatizing, you know, the severity of the problem. I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, on on that because I mean I think that is very ha very heavily happening in the U.S. and not not quite so much in other places. 
the U.S. has, where I put it is the U.S. is the worst place in the world to have a severe mental illness mm-hmm. because we completely ignore, almost completely ignore the people with severe psychiatric conditions, relegate 600,000 of them to jail or living homeless, provide almost no care for them and, and um, almost no housing, no decent housing. So that we have a population of individuals with clear-cut psychiatric illness that could be well-treated if only there were the resources in the community to treat them and places for people to live. At the same time, we're terribly over-treating the worried well and the mildly ill by medicalizing the problems of everyday life. And one of the problems for psychiatry is that it, it used to be that psychiatrists were doing the initial evaluations and would have enough time to think about not just the biological component, but also the psychological and social, have enough time to talk to patients, educate them, enough time for watchful waiting. You didn't have to make diagnoses in the first visit. You didn't have to begin treatment right away. With the advent of managed care and insurance company supervision of care, uh, lots of the responsibilities of psychiatrists were switched to um, less expensive professionals at the front door. And increasingly, psychiatrists were seen as a last resort. And major purpose it was uh, to prescribe medication for patients who need meds. So the patient wouldn't be seen in a setting where all of the factors, the psychiatrist is often downstream, not seeing the patient at a point where all of the factors are being considered, but often called on for a quick consultation to write the medication. And in many mm-hmm. settings, the psychiatrists are employed really is pill pushers to end of the line consultation. I think we as a profession have to resist that. We have to have our first obligation be to the patient, not to the organization. We have to spend enough time with each patient to make sure that what we're doing makes sense. We have to consider the psychological and social contextual factors that go into symptom production. We have to consider the fact that medication may be causing the problem. It's not necessarily the solution to the problem we have to spend more time with patients. That unless we get to know our patients, if we see our role as, ah, I see on a checklist that these are the symptoms and therefore I'm gonna prescribe this new medication and I'm gonna get this all done in 15 minutes, we're gonna be doing a disservice to the patients. And ultimately it's a stupid, economically stupid, as well as clinically um, misguided way of approaching care because the short-term cheap thing to do which is to write a prescription, is in the long run much more expensive for the patient, for the treatment system, and for the society. It's true. I want to ask you uh, now about, you know, in in, um, in the U.S. at least, there's, there's not a lot of uh, I get, uh, psychiatrists, I would say, from my perspective, you know, questioning the way things are done. I mean, you you kind of very vocally emerged on the scene about 10 years ago. Um, and I want to get your perspective on, uh, and, and maybe there are, maybe, maybe maybe there are other American psychiatrists you could po- point to who are also raised, sounding the alarm about this, who have maybe the platform that you have being um, so prominent in the field. But um, what's your understanding of why there aren't more um, psychiatrists out there uh, talking about these types of issues? Uh, you know the you know the problems with the mental health care system. Well, I think. Uh, psychiatry is not a powerful profession. Uh, we're mostly um, not in control of how we practice. I mean, there are some people who are 
still in private practice, but probably the majority of psychiatrists now are on salary or contract of one sort or another. Uh, the ability to um, to speak out against one's own livelihood is limited. Um, I had the luxury of not depending on practice for support. Um, and I spoke out way too late. I mean, I think I wrote papers like No Treatment is a Treatment of Choice as early as 1982, but I did not use the bully pulpit of DSM-4 to make these issues clear. I made clear that I thought that there was diagnostic inflation. And we were very explicit about the fact that we, we would not increase the number of new diagnoses. There were 94 suggested new diagnoses for DSM-4. We accepted only two. But I didn't say um, that we should reduce the system because if we were going to be data-based, it's very hard to eliminate things if you um, don't have evidence to, to prove that they, they are harmful. I don't think I was nearly vocal enough. I was vocal about being conservative in DSM-4, but I don't think I was nearly vocal enough about the plight of the severely ill or the, um, the very great harms of overdiagnosis. I didn't use a public forum uh, that came only later. So I have regrets. I mean, I think I, I should have been a much more advocate, stronger advocate, both for the needs of the severely ill and for the um, harms that are done, unintended consequential harms that are done from overtreatment. Uh, so I was a little bit too late and maybe too little. And um, well, I think I'd probably speak for many people and just that just kind of great, grateful for what you did because I, th I think I mentioned previously, you know, when I when I read, uh, you know, Saving Normal when I was a resident, resident, it gave me a whole new kind of perspective on, on psychiatric diagnosis, and I think it really changed me as a clinician for the better. So I, I would just say, you know, um, yeah, you know, uh, your work is, you know, is greatly appreciated. Um, I, I want to ask about. You know, what, what happened after you came out publicly and started saying things that were more uh, critical about the way psychiatry was practiced? I mean, were you, um, you know, were you ostracized by some people? Were you quietly embraced in private circles for saying things that everyone had been thinking? What, 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 was, what was that like for you with, the, I guess, all of those professional colleagues? Yeah, well, you? Yeah. I mean, I lost friendships, um, mm -hmm. gained others. Um, yeah. That, I don't think that's too important. I think the issue is that... Um, mm -hmm. We still have 600,000 people who are sleeping on streets or living in dungeons. Uh, when Biden considered having a um, infrastructure program that would help not just on physical infrastructure, but on uh, social infrastructure, the administration did not even consider the fact that mental illness is so underfunded as a uh, infrastructure project for the future. So I would say that my impact has been pretty small. I think it, it's had... The book has had a significant impact on a large number of people like yourself. I know that. I hear that all the time. I give classes and lectures and stuff, and everyone who comes loves the book, and it changed exactly what you said. But how much it's actually changed systemically the disaster that is American mental health care, um, I would say that that's pretty small. It's is helped people. I'm sure it's helped individual patients but the system is as bad now as it's ever been. Um, okay. I, I was going to ask you, is there anything to be hopeful about, you know, any kind of um, uh, movements, you know, whether, whether it's to try and, uh, 
get insurance companies to place more um, uh, value on, you know, maybe longer, you know, psychotherapeutic counseling, you know, with practitioners or maybe some other aspects I'm not aware of. Anything to be hopeful of in terms of the way this is changing. I think that um, there won't be any sudden breakthroughs in psychiatry. The brain is the most complicated thing in the known universe. There are no simple answers. The drug companies have stopped doing research on psychiatric drugs because there are no you know, magic bullets that are going to be discovered in probably for decades, if ever. Um, so I think the, the question is, will care be improved? I think that the um, efforts of patients has, have been very useful in emphasizing the importance of deprescribing, that the, uh, the various groups that have developed to point out the risks of taking um, antidepressants and benzodiazepines and to a lesser degree antipsychotics that pointing out the need to, to um, be very consumer oriented before starting, to be an informed consumer before starting, to be careful in deprescribing. I think that physicians are becoming more aware of this. It's written about much more. Recently, the British uh, Society of Psychiatry came out with a very strong statement about the risks of antidepressant um, withdrawal symptoms, which had been denied for many years. So th there's encouragement that people are becoming more consumer-oriented and aware of the risks of medication. There's much less, there isn't drug advertising now for psychiatric drugs because they no longer have patent protection. That's a good thing. But in terms of a systemic change, particularly in the U.S., in how primary care doctors prescribe medication, a systemic change in giving psychiatrists more time to get to know their patients, a systemic change that would uh, bring out the psychiatric patients who are prisoners and get them back in the community where they belong, a systemic change to deal with mm. the problems of the homeless. I'm not too optimistic that any of these are quickly going to happen. I think that individual practitioners have to not give up hope. I mean, I think that the, there isn't great hope on the broader sphere that we're going to have a political and sociological uh, reawakening in America to our responsibilities to the severely ill, reawakening to the awareness that primary care medicine is being practiced in just the worst way possible in the U.S. I don't see that happening in the short run. But I think for individual practitioners, it's important that at the end of their career, they not feel, as, as I sometimes do, that I should have done a lot more, that it's important for an individual practitioner to maintain hope and the integrity of our calling, to not do things that are wrong just because the system says they have to be done that way, to get to know patients, to not prescribe in the reflex sort of way, to become an expert at deprescribing medication, and to continue seeing very sick patients, not to run away from them. Dr. Francis, um, um, I think this is probably a good time to wrap. I've, I've, I've gone a little over time, but you know, I just... I so appreciate you uh, taking the time to to speak with me and talk about what I think is a really, really important issue. So uh, I, really I want your effort to stem the tide and to do the right thing and to help others to to learn what's most appropriate care, educating both clinicians and patients to avoid the risks of over medication for those people where medication may be more harmful than helpful to in, in educate people about how to get off medication because that's so important. And I think we all also have to recognize our the importance of our constantly advocating for the severely ill. We yes. shouldn't sleep comfortably if they're not able to um, have a place to sleep at night off the streets or if their bed is in a prison. 
And um, very true. So yeah, thank, thank you for those kind words. I mean, I'd love to have you on again sometime in the future if you'd be interested and, and, and topics emerge where you could lend your expertise. Yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. Good luck. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.